Exodus 5, beginning at verse 1. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labour? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw. But require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. This is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, This is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered over, all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required for, of you each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, Why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work, you will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers realised they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my, my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, 
whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labour. Well, there are times, aren't there, when we're reading through the Scriptures and we're very aware of our distance from the events uh, that we read about. And maybe as you heard of some of the things in chapter 5, you were conscious of some of the distance there. We think of uh, making bricks out of straw, and we're thankful to God that um, that's not what we're asked to do in this country. We think of slavery under an oppressive ruler, and we're thankful to God that that's not our experience. But perhaps as you read those final verses from chapter 5, as we get into chapter 6, there is that real sense in which we can very immediately identify with what is going on. Because our passage begins, we're going to look at chapter 5, verse 22, to the end of where Tim read in chapter 6 and verse 9, with, with Moses coming before the Lord. And he comes before God with something which is very common to all of us, because he comes struggling with doubts due to difficult circumstances. And that is something that we can all identify with. I wonder how often have we come before God with those same two words with which Moses began his address to the Lord. Why, Lord? Why, Lord, is my workplace such a difficult place right now? Why, Lord, do you seem to be calling me to singleness when I long for marriage? Why, Lord, is home life such a challenge right now? Difficult situations can lead us to doubt what God is doing in our lives. And we can ask that same question, why, Lord? And we know that that Moses has been through some very hard things in chapter 5. He has just come before Pharaoh and he has shared God's word, calling Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. And then Pharaoh responds with that clear no to God's word. And not only that, he intensifies his harsh treatment of the people. He refuses to provide the straw they need to make the bricks, so they have to gather it themselves. And he maintains their daily quota of bricks upon them as slaves. And as we saw last week, he was doing that because he wanted to claim that he was the Lord and the God of Israel was not the Lord. But that renewed pressure from Pharaoh led to trouble for the people of God, within the people of God, because not only did they know trouble from the outside, they started to know trouble on the inside because the Israelites turn against Aaron, Aaron and Moses. They accuse them of creating the problem, not Pharaoh, and they call down judgment upon Moses and Aaron. 
And this week, as Moses responds to that and as he brings his doubts to God, we're going to see how God counsels Moses in his doubts. We're going to see how the Lord answers our doubts. But as we begin to do that, we're going to start by looking at Moses' struggle. And as we're going to come to verses 22 and 23, we're going to have three points this morning. And the first is this, the nature of doubt. The nature of doubt in verses 22 and 23. Because Moses, having felt the anger of the people, he comes before the Lord. We read there in verse 22, Moses returned to the Lord and said... Now, as we look at what happens here, there are good things in what Moses does, and there are problematic things in his words to God. But we must identify, first of all, what is good. And what is good here is that Moses draws near to God in his doubts. Now, in that way, Moses does the contrast to what the Israelites do. Because in chapter 5, when the Israelites experience trouble, what do they do? Well, they run back to Pharaoh, hoping that he will rescue them. And in doing so, Pharaoh's response shows them more of his evil nature, and he enslaves them further. But Moses here shows us what any believer should do, which is that he turns to God, he returns to the Lord in his doubts, and he speaks to God about what he is experiencing. Too often we can engage in an internal conversation in our minds in the midst of our troubles and in those situations when we're doubting. But when we do that, we will tend towards anger or perhaps despair. And neither of those are helpful. Instead, friends, what we need to do is follow Moses and his instinct, which is to return to the Lord. And there is a way to speak to God about our doubts, which is right. We see that pattern for us many times in the Psalms, where believers come and bring their struggles before the Lord. But Moses' words here are not a good example to us. Look down at verses 22 and 23. Moses' complaint has two main questions. His first question is, why has the Lord brought trouble upon the people rather than rescuing the people? Now, the word Moses uses for trouble in verse 22 and in verse 23 is the word evil in the original. So Moses is bringing a serious accusation against God. God is not the source of evil, and we must never accuse him of that. And the way Moses phrases his complaint is put in a very strong way to the Lord. His words, you have not rescued your people at all, are are put in the strongest possible terms in the Hebrew. If we were to put this in our, our own language, well, we'd put it in underlined capital letters in bold type. He's making a strong complaint to the Lord. But then he has a second question, which is, why did you send me to Pharaoh when Pharaoh wasn't going to listen? Moses had thought that his involvement was going to improve things for the Lord's people, but it seems to have only made the situation worse. Now, in Moses' second question, it seems that he has forgotten what God had said to him. Because if you jump back in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3 and verse 19... We read there, the Lord says, but I know the king of Egypt will not let you go 
unless a mighty hand compels him. So God had prepared Moses for these difficulties. He had told him that it was going to be hard, and he had forgotten that. We can do something similar in hard situations in our lives. We can forget that God has told us a Christian life will be characterized by hardship and struggle. We can forget that it will be hard because of indwelling sin in us and indwelling sin in others. And we can forget it will be hard because of the effects of sin in our worlds, which means we will experience a broken world with fallen bodies. We can also forget far too easily that the Christian life is a spiritual battle. And God's warning of Moses in chapter 3 and the Lord's preparing us for trouble and difficulty are an expression of his kindness to us. Because he wants to prepare us for hardship. Now, I know that many are experiencing all kinds of hardship and trouble right now in our church family. But I want to speak particularly to those who are not going through that at the minute. We can be thankful for seasons of peace and of calm. But it's so important that we have our expectations in the right place. I remember that I was a young Christian, an older Christian man spoke to me and said, Matthew, you need to have right expectations for the Christian life. You need to prepare for trouble and suffering. And he said that because he could see I hadn't been through trouble and hardship. But he wanted me to know it was coming. And there are times when we can doubt because we forget that God has told us that life here and now will be characterized by that kind of struggle. We can forget that the cross comes before glory. We need right expectations, but there is something deeper about Moses' challenge to the Lord here. If we think even more deeply about the kinds of questions he is bringing, really he is doubting two things that are fundamental to who God is. He is doubting God's character. Because behind his questions, there seems to be a challenge to the goodness of God. Because he's saying, if you are really good, then you wouldn't be bringing trouble upon your people and you would be rescuing them here and now. He doubts God's character. And he also doubts God's promise. He doubts that God is going to perform the deliverance he had spoken about. And so he says, Lord, is this going to happen? And that doubt about God's character and God's promise are very serious questions. They're very serious because if God's character is in question, then we really have a problem, don't we? Because if the world, if we live in a world with an all-powerful God who isn't good, well, that's a scary place to live, is it not? And then if God's promise isn't sure, if that's in doubt, then what hope do we have? Because how can we trust anything God has said? Friends, there is a connection between Moses' questions about God's character and God's promise back to the very first temptation of mankind in the Garden of Eden. Because when the serpent there tempted Eve... She placed the same doubts in Eve's mind when she said, did God really say that you should not eat from this tree? What's that a challenge? It's a challenge to the promise of God. 
And he sowed doubts about God's good character too because he, because he said, you will not certainly die. God knows that when you eat from the tree, you'll become like him, knowing good and evil. And so Satan is doing what he has always done because if he can get God's people to doubt those two fundamental things about God, that he is good and that his promise is sure, then he is attacking the very heart of their faith. In chapter 5, Satan is attacking God's people through Pharaoh. And in chapter 6 here, Satan is attacking Moses through those doubts. And that reminds us, friends, that doubt is a spiritual challenge. That it is one of Satan's tools that he often uses to try and destabilize the people of God and turn them away from the Lord. And so we need to recognize that and not listen to him. And instead of turning from the Lord, we need to draw near to him. And as we do that, let's see what happens. We have seen the nature of doubt. Now we come to God. Secondly, we come to God's response to our doubts. Our second point, God's response to our doubts. Now, before we get into the detail here, I just want us to see God's grace and kindness to Moses. Because this is not the first time that Moses has doubted God. It's not the first time that he has struggled to trust the Lord. And he brings some strong accusations against the Lord that are serious. And yet notice, God does not give up on Moses. He doesn't say, okay, Moses, we're done now. I'm just going to work with Aaron and he's going to go about this work I'm calling you to do. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He responds to Moses' doubts. And friends, too often we have an idea of God that is shaped by how we might treat one another rather than who he is. God is far kinder. God is far more patient than any of us. And we see God's grace in abundance in how he helps Moses. Now remember that the heart of Moses' questions had to do with God's character and God's promise. And here we see, as we look beginning in chapter 6 in verse 1, how, how the Lord responds to those very struggles directly as he says to the Lord, in respond, as the Lord says to Moses in responding to his doubts, first of all, know who I am. My character is certain. There is one phrase the Lord repeats three times to Moses in these verses. It's in verse 2, it's in verse 6, and in verse 8. What is it? It is, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And the way that phrase is put, particularly in verse 2, has a sense of a claim to divinity. God is saying, I am your God. I am your king. I am the ruler of this universe. And the way God is going to rescue his people from Egypt will indisputably show that he alone is the Lord. If we look at verse 1, we see that God tells Moses that the Lord will not have to wrestle the Israelites out of Pharaoh's hand. No, the Lord says that he, that is Pharaoh, will let them go and will drive them out of the country. Now, because we know the story, that doesn't surprise us. 
but it should. In light of all that has happened in chapter 5, has Pharaoh want to let them go? Not at all. Does Pharaoh have any intention, it seems, of driving them out of the country? Not at all. His grip upon them is only firmer as you come to the end of chapter 5. But here God says his power is going to be displayed in such an indisputable way that he will move Pharaoh and act in such a way that Pharaoh says go. That Pharaoh drives them out. Such is the power of the Lord. And that will indisputably answer Pharaoh's question, who is the Lord? He will know because he will see. And this amazing rescue of his people will reveal something new about God's character as the Lord. The Lord tells Moses that. Look down at verses 3 to 5 where God draws a contrast between the name by which he was known to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the name by which he is going to be known by the Israelites. So if you look at verse 3, he says that he was known as God Almighty to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now in the Hebrew, that word is El Shaddai. You've probably heard that. El Shaddai. And the meaning of El Shaddai is is difficult, but as we look at how it's used in the context, it seems to mean God of blessing or the God who provides. And that fits, doesn't it, with how the Lord dealt with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But then we read there at the end of verse 3, I did not make myself fully, sorry, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now, what does that mean? Well, God has already used the title, the Lord, about himself before this point. So it cannot mean that that name isn't spoken of God before this point, because that's the case in Scripture. It means something else. What it means is this, that whilst the people knew the name, the Lord... They didn't fully know all that name entailed because they had not seen the demonstration of God showing himself to be the Lord through the Exodus. So the events of the Exodus will reveal a new aspect of God's character to his people. They will know him as the Lord in a fuller way. They could use that name, the Lord, but in seeing the exodus and experiencing the exodus, they will know him as the Lord. Ferdy Borkham illustrates this really well by speaking of it like this. He says it's it's like what a, a child might know about the name of Jesus when they grow up in a home where the Lord Jesus is spoken of and taught. And they come to church and they hear Prayers to the Lord Jesus, songs to the Lord Jesus, God's word taught all about the Lord Jesus. But then when they come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ personally, they know something of Jesus' name they didn't know before. They know him as their saviour, the one who has rescued them. They have heard his name in speech But now they know his name in salvation. And that is what's going on here in the Exodus. 
that God is showing his people just what it means that he is the Lord because he is confirming his character to them. And in that way, we see God both helping Moses and us in our doubts, in confirming his character as the Lord to us. Because, friends, in the midst of all our doubts and questions that we go through, the biggest thing we need to hear isn't the answer to our question of why something is happening. What we need to know is the character of our God who is caring for us. It's striking that God's reply to Moses doesn't answer any of his specific questions. Instead, he says, you need to know who I am. You need to know that I am the Lord and it is the character of God that brings true peace to our hearts because there are hundreds of reasons to doubt each day. But knowing God as our God brings security. God says, know my character, know who I am. But then, as we move down to verses 6 to 8, we see that secondly, in answering our doubts, God says, know my promises, know my promises. Now, if you look at verses 6 to 8 and you trace God's words there, there are seven I wills, all which communicate what God is about to do for his people. So he is extending promise after promise after promise to Moses and to the people. And those seven I wills can be grouped into three key promises. There is a promise of rescue, and it's there in verse 8. Our translators have helpfully grouped each of them into one of the verses, so we can trace it through. And if you look down at verse 8, we see three promises about rescue. God says, I will bring you out from under the oak of the Egyptians. It is not the case that God has not seen the oppression of his people. He has seen the burdens they face, And he is going to bring them out from the yoke of those burdens. And then he says, I will free you from bringing slaves to them. The second I will. And then I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Now in this promise to redeem them, God is using a concept of a kinsman redeemer. Now that's a concept that was known in the ancient Near East and What it was about was when there was an obligation put upon a near relative who had a duty to help or deliver his own family from difficulty or danger. So it was a kinsman, one of your own kin, a family redeemer, someone who's going to rescue you and help you. And if you know the book of Ruth, you'll know this is what Boaz becomes to Ruth and Naomi when they are in destitute poverty and living in danger. But the key thing for us to note about that role is it is a role for those who have family links to the person who's in trouble. So in calling upon that concept and in saying, I'm going to be that kind of redeemer for you, a kinsman redeemer, what is God saying? God is saying that Israel are his family. Elsewhere, we've already heard him refer to Israel as his son, and he is so committed to rescuing them, he is like a father committed to rescuing his children from danger. And friends, that gives added security to the promise, because these promises aren't just made in the abstract. 
They're made in the context of a family relationship that God is extending towards his people. So he promises rescue, which brings us to the next promise. He promises a relationship. The next two I wills for us there in seven, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. That two-way commitment to take them as his people and to be their God is a pledge that the Lord isn't just going to free them and then let them go. He is going to continue to help them and to care for them. And then the third promises are to do with rest for Azar in verse 8, where the Lord makes two final promises about the land of Canaan prepared for his people. And God says, again notice the, I will Bring you to the land I swore you with an uplifted hand to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give you this land as a possession. Now remember, to this point, God's people, when they had lived in Canaan, how had they lived there? In tents. And who had owned it? The Canaanites. They had been a nomadic people. And yet God says, you're not going to live in tents anymore. I am going to make this your home. I am going to give it to you. And so in those seven I wills, God is promising rescue. He is promising relationship and he is promising rest. Now, promises are always hard to make. But when we make them, we nearly always make them to people who are showing some kind of commitment to us as well. And what makes these promises astonishing is that God makes them to his people who have turned from him, who have treated him so shamefully. They are not faithful. They are not worthy of these promises. And yet he pledges to do all this for them. And how do you explain that then? Why is God going to do this? Well, it's only explained through God's faithfulness to his covenant. His fulfillment of what he has already said he would do, which is what he refers to in verses 4 and 5. This promise of rescue and return is a fulfillment of the promise to his people in the past, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he is doing this because he remains committed to them. God rescues Israel because of his promise and in spite of their unfaithfulness to teach us a vital truth in the Christian life, that our salvation does not depend on us in any way and that it is from beginning to end a work of God's sovereign power alone. Friends, that gives you amazing security as a believer to rest in those promises. If you're a believer, your fickle heart cannot change God's character because however changeable your heart is, his character is immovable. And friends, even your sin, if you're a Christian, cannot nullify the promise of God. Because salvation is all of grace, 
Salvation is by faith alone and not by works. And salvation is all in Christ and not in us. That's why in this way, Exodus is pointing forward to the glories of the gospel. And indeed, as we think of those three groups of promises of rescue, relationship, and rest, we see that they mirror what God has promised us as his people. Because if we are trusting in Jesus Christ alone, God has rescued us and will rescue us. He has rescued us from Satan and sin and death. And even those strong foes are not strong enough to keep us captive. Because Christ has come and he has set us free through the cross. And we have been promised a relationship through faith. We belong to him. Those same words that he says of his people, he says of us, I am your God. You are my people. And it's always and forever because it rests in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know rescue, we know relationship, and God also has promised us rest. He's promised us an everlasting home in heaven to come. And one day we will know all of that for eternity. And all of these things will happen because, as we saw in Zechariah's song last Sunday evening in Luke 1, because God has moved by what? His mighty arm, his mighty hand in bringing salvation. He has come into the world in Jesus Christ to set us free. And friends, in the midst of doubts and struggles, that is what we need to know. That God's character is sure. That God's promise is certain. And there is sadness in this world. There is sorrow. There is suffering. But where is our hope? Our hope, our comfort is in our God whose character is certain and promise is sure. The Heidelberg Catechism reminds us that our only comfort in life and in death, notice that life and death is this, that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful saviour, Jesus Christ. And he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's our hope, friends, in life and in death. So we've seen God's answer to our doubts. And now thirdly and finally, we come to the root of unbelief in verse 9. Exodus is a book full of twists, isn't it? And surprises. And verse 9 is a twist and a surprise and a sadness all in one. 
Because Moses, having received those wonderful promises from God, and having had God's character confirmed to him in all that God says, then we read verse 9, he reports this to the Israelites. But they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. Moses tells the people of God all that God has said, but they don't hear. And they don't hear because of what Pharaoh was doing to them had dulled their hearts to God's word. And that is so sad to see, isn't it? Moses' doubts here are the doubts of a believer. But the people of Israel had an even deeper problem in their unbelief. Because their captivity to Pharaoh and his treatment was stopping them from hearing. Now remember that Israel's captivity to Pharaoh is a picture of humanity's captivity to Satan and sin's power. And so what are we seeing here? We're seeing that the root of Israel's unbelief is the blinding effects of sin. Jesus told us about this in the parable of the sower and the soils where he had that that story where he spoke of one seed of the word of God that is sown into four different soils. Some is sown on the path and it's quickly snatched away. Some is sown in rocky places but it has no root and when trouble and persecution comes it falls away. Others is sown among thorns, but then the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires of things, other things come in and choke the word. And only when the word is sown into good soil does it bring forth a rich harvest in someone's life. Now, I think you could argue in this passage and elsewhere, Israel were at different times each of those three first soils, were they not? And what we're being reminded of here in verse 9 is that listening to the word alone is not enough. You need to hear it in your heart. You need to have good soil. So when we faithfully and winsomely share the gospel and some don't believe, it's not because there's a problem with the message. It's not because there's a problem with the messenger. It's because of a problem with the spiritual ears of the hearers. It's because sin has so captured the hearts of people that they cannot hear and believe. And friends, that should give us great compassion for those who don't believe. It should make us so patient in that work of ongoing sowing of the word of God. And it should make us so very prayerful And we should be prayerful because there is great hope. There is great hope because, friends, this is why Jesus came. He came to change people's hearts so that they can hear the word of God and believe. In Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, we read that one of the very first things that Jesus did in his ministry was to go into a synagogue in Nazareth in his hometown and open the scroll of Isaiah and read in the book of Isaiah 
words that explained the reason he had come into the world. So in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, Jesus reads these words. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me, and listen for all the Exodus language, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and the recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressors free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's amazing, friends, isn't it, that Jesus explains the reason for his coming in Exodus language. He's come to proclaim freedom for captives. He's come to cure spiritual blindness, to open closed ears. He has come to set us free from oppression, to sin and to Satan, so that we might know the blessing and favor of our God in rescue, in relationship, and in rest. And so let me ask you, friends, have you come to him to know that salvation? Have you come to the Lord Jesus Christ and said, Lord, open my eyes, open my ears so that I can hear your truth with faith? And if you have come, keep on coming. Keep on bringing your doubts to him. Asking him to confirm afresh his character and his promises. And friends, that's what we're about to do as we come around the Lord's table, is it not? We come to remember the character of our God who saves and his promise to those who believe that by faith in Christ, we have eternal life in him. And we keep on coming until all that is faith becomes sight. And so our fear and unbelief are gone. Our Lord and our God, we praise you and we bless you for your kindness here to Moses. Thank you for your grace that as we draw near in our doubts, you do not cast us away, but you answer our doubts by confirming your character and your promise. Lord, we know that in ourselves and in our world, there are many reasons to find doubts. But as we look to you, you give us security and you are unchanging in your promises. So help us, we pray. Help us to know that comfort in life and in death, that we are not our own, but we belong to you. And we look forward to that future day when we will know the fullness of your rescue, when we will know the fullness of that relationship, because we will enter the glories of our eternal rest. So seal your word to our hearts, strengthen us, we pray, and use it for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.